0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here are your hosts clinical health psychologist Dr. Kelly Donahue and nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. We are so excited today to have Dr. Bland. He is known as the father of functional medicine, a medical approach that focuses on the personalized prevention and treatment of chronic diseases. Over the past 35 years, Dr. Bland has traveled more than 6 million miles, teaching more than 100,000 healthcare practitioners in the United States, Canada, and more than 40 other countries about functional medicine. He has been a university biochemistry professor, a research director at the Linus Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine, the co-founder of the Institute for Functional Medicine in 1991, and the founder and president of the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. He has authored more than 100 scientific publications and 11 books for the healthcare professional and health consumer. He lives in Bainbridge Island, Washington with his wife, Susan, and near his three sons and their families while pursuing his hobbies of boating, surfing, scuba diving, and a lifelong passion for learning. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Well, thank you, Cynthia, so much. What a pleasure to be with you today. I can't tell you, the first time we met, I could immediately feel your energy and your uh, your your social activism and your leadership. It comes across immediately.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And I, I remember telling Kelly that I came back from Mindshare and I said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I was sitting at <laughs> dinner randomly next to Jeff Blaine and we just struck up a conversation and I was so impressed because our conversation centered around your family. I was so humbled to be in your presence and to be talking to you and then to recognize that... You lead with your love and passion for your family that um, embodies everything that you do and all your decisions and just how brilliant, um, brilliant your mind is and, and how much uh, you have really changed the way that I practice. Um, I practice as a nurse practitioner. So so grateful to have you here.
1: Well, thank you, and I, I just want to do a shout out to my family because uh, you know I had three sons. Um, and obviously, they had girlfriends in their lives as they grew up. But I never had daughters, and now I have uh, three granddaughters, and it's it's so incredible to um, to have both genders that I've got in the family now. Because I'm learning a lot from the granddaughters, and in fact, uh, it was very very powerful uh, at our holiday uh, over the over the uh, holidays. We had a Christmas dinner; everybody was together in the family, and. I looked across the big table with all of the 17 members of the family sitting there, and, and I wondered who these new young women were that were sitting at the table. And I recognized these were my granddaughters, It suddenly just uh, overnight seemed to have turned into these high-energy, activist-oriented, socially uh, conscious young women. I thought, wow, this is, this is going to be a fun run, run here for the next years to come. So it's a, it's, a, it's a new learning curve for me. A lot of fun. I bet.
2: I bet. Oh. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you did say you are a lifelong learner, so I guess <laughs> yes, it's in exactly. that area as well. <laughs> I've got
1: a lot <left> to learn.
2: <laughs> well, you are known as the father of functional medicine, and I don't think that that title can be taken too lightly. And I want to explore a little bit more about your interest in functional medicine when functional medicine really wasn't a thing as we know it today. Can you tell us how you got started?
1: Yeah, it. Uh, I'll try to make the story uh Quick and, and understandable. So, what uh, what happened over my career, as uh, I look back now, over forty years in this in the field, I guess, um, was that uh, early on in my education, and I would say going actually back to high school, uh, my mother confirmed this with me in a conversation or a series of conversations I had with her. I, my my question was always, uh, why do people get sick? And um, you know, we could obviously study infectious disease and we can understand something about microbes, viruses, and bacteria and so forth. And, and But then there was this whole other kind of family of disorders that were not necessarily tied to uh, an infection and, and were seemingly important, like heart disease and diabetes and cancer and stroke and so forth. And so when I went on to medical school, uh, which was in the 60s... Um, I was really constantly asking this question, you know, why, uh, and, uh, eventually I, I, cause I was a fairly young student at the time. I got gone through college very rapidly. And so I think I was a little bit immature about, uh, my, um, advocacy about wanting to know. And, uh, my, uh, instructors were, uh, feeling that I was being maybe, uh, a little bit disrespectful because I kept asking all these questions. And finally, uh, one of my mentors said, "You know, Jeff, you've got a thousand questions, and and normally we wait to out in clinical practice to ask those questions. But you seem to have such a burning desire to answer them. You ought to really enroll in a PhD program because you know people really get reinforced for asking questions in a PhD program. So, I, I transitioned over in my third year to to be in a in in a PhD program, which turned out to fit my personality very well. So I could kind of explore this question of why people or how people got sick. That led me into all sorts of explorations, which eventually got me into my first teaching position uh, where it was 1970. I started as an assistant professor in, in, in a dual appointment in the uh, chemistry department, in biochemistry, and um, and uh, started the uh, environmental science uh, department because it was earth, earth year that year. and. Uh, And that was a really great track for me to kind of understand the interconnection between people and their environment. If you think of studying environmental science and then you're studying clinical biochemistry, there's there's a meeting of the minds between the two, which ultimately led me to recognize that there was this interconnection between uh, the genes that we carry and how they are responding to the environment in which we live. And that then would map against how we felt as we, and, and our, and our health conditions, as we move forward in life. And so that kind of um, emergence of an understanding in the seventies led me ultimately to have some remarkable meetings uh, with people that really affected my, my thought process. Uh, one of which, and probably at the head of the list would be Linus Pauling two, two time Nobel prize winning laureate and his wife, Eva Helen, who uh, was just an unbelievably remarkable woman of, of, uh, uh, extraordinary advocacy, uh, particularly in the peace area. And uh, this was a time of, uh, in the 50s and 60s of atmospheric and nuclear testing. And she was very active in in uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons and stopping nuclear te- bomb testing. And that led her husband Linus to get involved and that, from which he eventually won, won his second Nobel Prize. Um, he always felt that she should have gotten the second Nobel Prize because it was really her advocacy you know, through his celebrity that allowed, in fact, I have a photograph uh, that was a a copy of a photograph that was given to me by the Paulings as a gift when I was there. That's Albert Einstein, Albert Schweitzer, and Linus Pauling sitting at a table in Africa at the Olavai Gorge of Schweitzer, where they were trying to decide how they were going to get 30,000 signatures from scientists to take to the UN to stop uh, and to petition against uh, nuclear testing. So these were really important uh, important experience for me because I spent uh, two years at the Pauling Institute on sabbatical. And when I came off of that experience, I decided I wanted to give up my tenured faculty position. I had a family uh, at that point of, of uh, two children uh, and a wife and a house and a car. And I just made the decision that uh, I give up the security of my tenure position and uh, which i, I actually love teaching and i think i was well respected but i i wanted to um, start a company that would teach doctors how to be involved uh, with preventive medicine <laughs> that was my that was my business plan <laughs> it was kind of what i think back kind of crazy uh, <clears throat> but that ultimately then there's nothing like a burning the boats as they say uh, mm-hmm. because there's no escape and so I, I really had to make good on that, which led me into really a, a deep um, study of uh, what would be the the, the the tools that are necessary to really transform uh, medicine to be more focused on the cause of disease rather than just its effect and where it came from and what are the mechanisms by which people got ill. And, and a lot of, over those years from 1960 to 1980s, a lot of new science was developed a new understanding of the mechanisms of origin of many of the diseases that when I was in school in the sixties, we didn't know the origin and now we were suddenly learning the origin and they were related to this connection between a person's genetic um, uh, uniqueness and the environment and lifestyle in which they lived. And so with that in mind and my experience with the, with the Paulings, uh, I ultimately, I, I give, my, give credit to my wife, Susan for this Um, having traveled around the world by that time and done quite a few seminars and collaborative research. um, She said, you know, Jeff, you've got all these colleagues and friends around the world that um, are people that you uh, really admire and and you feel they're thought leaders and are making uh, contributions to new knowledge. What happens if we were to sponsor a meeting and you could bring, say, 30 or 40 of these people in from around the world to sit down on a whiteboard exercise and and do a what if. What would the healthcare system look like if it was idealized? It didn't you have to worry about reimbursement or licensure, or you just could talk about the ideal state of what it would look like. And so we, uh, thanks to her organization, we did that in uh, in 1988, I think it was, yes, um, at in Victoria, British Columbia. And uh, that meeting turned out to be such a remarkably um, productive thought process that uh, we then, uh, did it a, a second year in 1989, and uh, or maybe that was 1990. I think that yeah, was 1990. And when I went to bed in between the three days, or I think it was between the the Saturday and Sunday of the meeting, uh, I had this kind of you know dream state about uh, what what were we really talking about over these two years, and and the word function came up to me. And I thought, well, you know, in the morning when I woke up, I thought, yeah, we are talking about function because loss of function really is the precedent to virtually every disease or change in function. So maybe we ought to be not looking at the disease state with the signs and symptoms, but the functional state, which may occur much earlier, change in function. In, In function, you could really go down at every level. You could talk about societal function. You could talk about family function. You could talk about individual function. You could talk about organ function, cell function, uh, tissue function, it it was a term that could could cut through all sorts of different levels. So um, when I went into the the group then on Sunday morning after having this kind of aha experience, I said, hey, uh, I have a thought of of what we might call what we've been talking about. And and so everyone said, what do you think, what's the word? I said, I I think we've been talking about function. Maybe we should call this functional medicine. And. there was a, quite a bit of pushback because people said, well, you know, I can understand why you chose that word, but actually that's not a really great word to use because there's already function being used in medicine. It, it really relates to either disability medicine, geriatric medicine, people are disabled, or psychosomatic medicine. It's all in your mind. Func- it's a functional condition. And that's kind of negative spin. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I, I recognize that, but I've been following the literature uh, fairly closely over the years. and." What I start to see now are a kind of reconfiguration of the definition of function in in healthcare, where we have now functional radiology and we have functional cardiology and we have functional endocrinology. So, maybe we're seeing a, a change in the way that it'll be used in the future. Maybe we ought to escape to where the puck is going, and, and not to where it's been. So, um, maybe because uh, we sponsored the meeting, I won the day, and so we we said, okay, let's give function a ch- uh, a, a try and see how it works and the more we, um, the more we explored it, and saw how it could be used to differentiate itself from uh, kind of pathophysiology-focused medicine that was really disease-focused. Uh, uh, and, and in this case, we would be earlier in looking at the cause of rather than the effect of. Uh, I think we chose a good word. And and over the um, now over the last 12, well, nearly 30 years, it's really grown up to be kind of redefined with that concept as the the new definition of function. So I'm I'm pretty excited to see what's happened over those decades. So that was a long-winded story, but that's how we got to function.
0: No, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And and as someone who's traditionally Western medicine and also functionally trained, I really appreciate value and I'm so grateful that you started those discussions and started the... Um, the thought process on how to kind of evolve the way that we look at our patients and given, you know, population uh, in terms of, you know, wellness versus disease, because even though I'm trained in primary care, uh, a lot of what I did working in cardiology and ER medicine was, you know, really responsive or reflexive. You know, someone would come in with a symptom and it was always, how do I address the symptom so that they don't come back with said symptom again, as opposed to looking a little further back and looking at all of the, things that impacted their ability to contract or experience that particular disease process. So I'm curious, you know, how do you describe, you know, when you're looking at these, this functional medicine approach for many of our listeners that are really not familiarized with that term, you know, what, what factors impact that? I know that you alluded to a couple of them, but let's break it down a little bit so they can understand, you know, what direction uh, this really points at.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so, people who uh, have kind of come in contact with this concept uh, often will say, "Well, what you're really doing is you're you're focused on what's called root cause medicine. You are trying to look at the cause and the effect. You're trying to look upstream, and often by the time you get to the emergency room, you're pretty far downstream. You've mm-hmm. you've got some fairly serious organ." injury that uh, requires intervention. And there is certainly, and and I want to emphasize, a very important role for interventional pathophysiology-based medicine. I mean, we're very fortunate to have this extraordinary technology that we have to rescue people from very serious uh, situations, either injury or or disease. But uh, what we've learned, obviously, is that we could move farther upstream or farther up the street to figure out where these came from we could help inform individuals as to what uh, choices they might make to uh, uh, prevent being the candidate for the, the the serious disease state. And so it's, um, it's a little bit more than, than uh, prevention. And, and uh, I actually have, over the years, uh, started to recognize that the term prevention, uh, although it sounds ideal and sounds wonderful as an aspirational word, is really kind of a, a word that leads to misdirection. And the reason it leads to misdirection is that most people really don't know what they're preventing unless they get it. <laughs> uh-huh. So they make changes uh, in their lifestyle, but they don't know what the real payoff is. So they, let's say they lowered their cholesterol, but they didn't feel any differently by lowering their cholesterol. The, um, the long-term adherence and compliance with doing that is going to be very poor. And if we really look at the success of prevention programs in the United States, they're very poor. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people didn't get the um, results that they were trying to to achieve, which is when you ask them what health really means to them, it really, the words that are used, uh, and there's hundreds of different words that are used, but they all really define function. Well, I wanted to do this, or I wanted to have this ability, or I wanted to get rid of this, this pain, or this low energy, or this cognitive dysfunction, or this digestive problem, or... Which are, which are all functional issues. They're not disease issues. There's not a tidy diagnostic code that you can apply to these. They're just like walking wounded. And so we then, as, um, as functional medicine uh, devotees, um, wanted to kind of de-dock a little bit from the prevention story, because uh, the prevention story, although it sounds wonderful in practice, really has not demonstrated much value. What we wanted to focus on are where people really see the difference and as a consequence are motivated to continue to engage in behavior change and continue to do something maybe different than they've been doing in the past. And if you break function down into its subcategories, I think uh, we have landed on, there are four different types of components of function. We call them the quadrants. So, but uh, th- those four types are physical function which we can all feel in our musculoskeletal system and our ability to move and do what we want to do. Then there is metabolic or physiological function. Those are the kind of the the workings of our inner body, the whole ways that sugar is metabolized and protein is used and fats are burned and all that kind of stuff. And then there is cognitive function, which is the cognition of our frontal lobes in our brain, the high executive center is ability to think forward and backward and, and put complex ideas together. And then, lastly, there's our behavioral or psychological function—that which is how do we behave, how do we manage the changes in life, and um, how does stress influence us? So, if you examine each of those four quadrants of function, you can actually—and we have set up ways of assessing uh, each one of those individual quadrants in a patient. So we can say, well, gee whiz, you know, your metabolic function is pretty good, but your physical function is compromised or whatever it would be. And and it gives us an ability to then personalize the approach.
0: Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order.
1: To that which the person is most interested in, because maybe that person is most interested in something that doesn't relate to the diagnosis. It relates to the ability for them to go to their granddaughter's graduation, something of that nature. So by using a functional criteria, uh, we're able to both personalize the program and to move, I think, upstream in, uh, in, in understanding the origin of their health problem, hopefully before it gets to the state where they're requiring to go into a more uh, disease-focused uh, intervention treatment program. And the... Um, the challenge I think that uh, that we have in getting this concept across is that traditionally, and certainly I'm a product of this kind of education, our whole uh, health education system is really not a health education system. It's a disease education system.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: um, so we get really good at understanding disease. And in Mm -hmm. fact, we get reinforced for it. We get reimbursed. We get pushed ahead to school. We get special, you know, kudos that we're really good at disease, (laughs) but then we call it health. And it's, it's actually not the same thing. Health is a, uh, is a branch of uh, discussion and inquiry that requires a different language and a different method of evaluation than that of disease. And in fact, health is not just the absence of disease. We know that, right? In fact, Mm -hmm. if you've talked to general people uh, who don't feel well and they're not diseased, they'll say, well, my health is not just the absence of disease. I just Mm -hmm. don't feel like I want to feel. And it's not just aging. There's something going on. So the functional model is really trying to pin down that individual person's um, this uh, state of uh, discouragement about something that their body is not doing right in either the physical, physiological, cognitive, or behavioral emotional level that we can then pinpoint and assist them to become the master of their own distant destiny. That's, I guess, the, uh, the focus.
2: That's so valuable. And I know Cynthia and I have both worked with many clients who come in with issues ranging from headache to, you know, massive crippling fatigue and depression, anxiety that often have this functional approach. When this approach is used, we're able to get to the bottom of it. But then there's something that happens with clients when they stop feeling bad, but they don't necessarily know what's next. Like, how do I really feel good? And it sounds like that's sort of what you're talking about with with health, what true health is, it's looking at how do I really not just feel not bad, but how do I really embrace feeling good? And I'm wondering if some of that happens when these four different functions that you talked about, start to really interact with one another, because they are separate functions, but I'm sure there's overlap and interaction. Can you talk a little bit about that, please?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, I think that is the secret sauce that you just said, Uh, that we are um, we're a system, right? We're not uh, just a collection of individual organ parts. (laughs) It's it's really uh, interesting to me when I look back at my own education um, in which, and I'm I'm making this a little more simplistic, but you'll get the drift. Uh, We studied textbooks and we had lectures and they were organ-based lectures. So you would study the gastrointestinal system and then you'd close the book and you'd take in the test and then you would move on and now it's the endocrine system. And then you'd Study that, close a book, take a test. Oh, now it's the nervous system. And so you'd go down the body as piece parts of different organs. And the assumption is somehow that these organs all work independently one to the other. And each organ had its own set of languaging about it. Each organ has its own uh, set of um, diseases that are named to it. So it has different codes for different diseases. And each of those diseases has different drugs to treat them. And so, you ultimately get a very compartmentalized way of thinking of the body, which basically is the subspecialty form of healthcare that we have. So, you know, you want to know something, you keep going to more and more of a specialist until they get down to <laughs> individual cell types in an individual organ, and they know everything about that. And um, and so, this concept of compartmentalizing the body to understand more and more about less and less until we know everything about nothing. Um, you know, that's that's a concern. I, 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 that was kind of a joke, just to overemphasize the point. But what we find often in the early stages of, um, of dysfunction of, is that there is a lot of crosstalk going on among the organs. So, so the, the gut is talking to the liver, and the liver is talking to the immune system, and the immune system is talking to the brain. And so we've got this interrelationship among these organs uh, as a system, uh, this is called network biology or systems biology. And this is the emerging new science that uh, I find this very interesting because what we have been talking about is functional medicine for 30 years is now the new science of systems biology. And, um, and, and now it's the leading medical schools are starting to teach this, network medicine, network biology. Uh, it will revolutionize the way that practitioners think about These complex conditions that we call chronic illness. But in the meantime, we're still tied in our medical world to the old differential diagnosis, one organ at a time model. And so there's a conflict there. Uh, You know, the language system and the way actually people are often reimbursed, the doctors make their money, is through the old model of one organ at a time. Mm -hmm. But the way people really don't feel well is by organs speaking among one another in a system that you've got to treat the cause not just each individual organ by itself. For instance, let me use one last example that people are quite familiar with. Diabetes. We know that we have a virtual epidemic of type 2 diabetes that's associated with um, insulin resistance, and uh, it it maps out against all sorts of problems of kidneys and liver uh, with fatty liver and with uh, dementia. even connects into type 3 diabetes with Alzheimer's. It connects into uh, problems of skin spots and and the dermatology, it connects into retinology because it can produce cataracts. And, <clears throat> and it connects into neurological problems like peripheral neuropathy. So it, it's, a, it's a disease that has multiple uh, connections to all sorts of different organs. But we think of the disease, type 2 diabetes, as a single diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It, it has a, a specific diagnostic code. So you say, well, if it's a single disease with a single diagnosis, it must require just one agent to treat it. Yet today in America, we have 14 different drugs that are approved to treat diabetes. Why do we need 14 different drugs? Because there is not just one disease called diabetes. Mm-hmm. The, the condition of high blood sugar may be the common theme, but its cause of the high blood sugar are multiple different causes. So you have one name for multiple conditions. And I've I've often said, if you had 100 type 2 diabetics that all have the same diagnosis, you'd have 100 different variations on a theme because their cause is unique to each individual. But yet we aggregate them together into what's called population-based medicine, aggregating all these different types into single things to make it easier. You can memorize the diagnosis and you can give a drug for that diagnosis rather than understanding the complexity of that individual's, maybe it's a gut microbiome problem maybe it's a toxic chemical problem their body is uh, uh, has accumulated a bunch of um, polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons from exposure to toxins or maybe it's a nutritional inadequacy maybe it's uh, related to gluten and inflammation i mean there's a there are many many maybe it's mercury toxicity there's all sorts of ways that your body can have interrupted control of um, blood sugar. So as we think of it from a functional medicine perspective, we try to break this down into what are the individual characteristics that give rise to that person's dysfunction by looking at these four quadrants and their lifestyle and their genes, uh, their genetic history and family history, and and try to work upstream, as I said, uh, to root cause rather than downstream to symptoms
2: i don't know about you but i like to enjoy a nice glass of wine after a long day or with friends on the weekends but the problem that i've encountered is that many wines have chemicals like pesticides or way too much sugar which damages your health and sleep cynthia and i are both big proponents of sleep so anything that damages our sleep is a no-go we did some research and we found a company called dry farm wine they're the only health focused natural wine club in the world. Their wine is all natural and additive free and it's lab tested for purity, sugar-free and low alcohol. So you can enjoy the taste of good wines without the massive chemical or sugar intake that can cause so many issues. When you join the Dry Farm Wine Club, you can choose how often you'd like to receive wines, you can choose monthly or every other month, or how many you'd like to receive, and you can choose the kind of wine you like. I prefer reds. As a special gift, if you sign up with our link, you can get a bonus bottle of pure natural wine with your first order for just one penny extra. That's right. 1 penny for an extra bottle of wine. Visit the link in the description to claim your bonus bottle of natural wine and join the Dry Farm Wine Club. Cheers.
0: Well, for anyone that listens to our podcast, they know that a a phrase that Kelly and I use probably in every single one is bioindividuality and so you've done a perfect delineation of what that that really represents. But I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute that you are the president of, which we know is a not-for-profit entity. And the mission is to transform healthcare through the promotion of information, innovation, and implementation of personalized lifestyle medicine. And that sounds amazing. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how the mission is actually being achieved? Because this actual institute can revolutionize what you've just talked about in terms of our traditional kind of Western medicine mindset um, system is.
1: Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. Um, you know, people have often asked me, after having been involved with founding the Institute for Functional Medicine, why would you need another institute? Are you just like trying to gather <laughs> institutes? Uh, there, you know, what's what's this deal? And um, what I recognized uh, after 20 plus years with the Institute for Functional Medicine is that we were doing a, a, a I thought, a pretty good job in um, in educating health practitioners uh, and health providers about this model. And in fact, over those 20 years, we had over 150,000 health practitioners go through our our courses, education, um, our ACCME certified education courses. So I thought we were doing a pretty good job on that level. But where I thought we were lacking is uh, where the tire meets the road, which is the um, health care consumer uh, who is really having to make uh, a lot of these uh, decisions in their life and And so we needed to take it away from the kind of a rarefied academic uh, uh, focus of what we call postgraduate continuing medical education, which is what (laughs) IFM does. And we needed to take it down into the collaboration among people who are involved with all sorts of different connectors into the health system Uh, versus the disease system. So this could be uh, people that are involved with uh, healthcare insurance. It could be healthcare educators. It could be healthcare legislators. It could be members of the... uh technology community they're developing wearable devices to assess aspects of of, of function it could be people that are involved with uh, biometrics in the laboratory business it could be individuals that are involved with behavior change it could be uh consumers who are involved with advocacy around uh, pesticides in foods for children i mean there's all these different subgroups that have interest in aspects of health throughout the, um, the spectrum of ages Um, and and genders and ethnicities, that if you could kind of uh, find a central theme to bring them together, it may be the critical mass that's necessary to really start creating a true health system. I think that we, when I say that, I don't want to, again, imply that we would then throw out the disease system. I think we want to maintain the disease system, but I have always thought we should have an equally capable, equally formalized, and equally professional health system so that he would have kind of these, this dual responsibility. And health would not just be public health, not just like billboard signs about um, where your seatbelts get immunized and uh, have a mammogram, that we would really be talking about personal health. Uh, and it would be a place you could find that information as equally professional as you could find information about treatment of a disease. So, with that, we decided, I guess I decided that we needed another um, organization that was not focused on postgraduate continuing medical education. It was really focused on championing the adoption of personalized lifestyle healthcare. Because, in the end, 80% of the healthcare problems we have are associated with individuals' life choices and the environment in which they live, associated with their unique genes producing their health outcomes. 80% of the expenditures today in healthcare or in disease care are tied to those kinds of conditions. Yet we don't have a formalized way yet to really address this other than public health. And I think we've all learned public health messages are, are nice to see PSAs and so forth, mm-hmm. but they really haven't moved the needle. We, we are still seeing rising tide. And I don't know if you've been following this recent data on the millennial generation, but it turns out that there is very serious worry about the the project, uh, projected health of the millennials because of things that are going on with them right now, sedentary lifestyle, stress, mm-hmm. detachment, loneliness, um, mm-hmm. some nutrition habits. It's been pro- uh, projected that this will be the least healthy generation that we've seen in a in hundred years. Mm-hmm. And so why is that? <laughs> because we're not getting the right kind of information, the right kind of uh, Mentorship for this Mm -hmm. this group of people, and so they're just waiting in the wings till their disease and jump into the disease care system. So, I think that that was the reason for uh, putting together the um, Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. Some uh,
0: today's podcast is sponsored by Nutrisense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise, so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition stress Ignites Metabolism
1: now nearly eight years ago, and, and I would encourage people who are interested, we have all of our uh, educational uh, programs that we've done on video, um, world leaders talking about it, that all uh, freely available uh, with no paywall on our website, which is uh, uh, plminstitute.org, and you can go and find the information and, uh, and read it your, or view it your at your heart's delight.
2: Well, we can feel your passion about this, um, and Cynthia and I definitely share that. You know, I think it's really interesting what you say about the millennials and this new generation of having such access to information at our fingertips, but yet not that's not improving health necessarily. And in your book, Disease Delusion, you state that fifty percent of the adults in the us have a diagnosis of at least one chronic health condition, chronic health Mm. condition. Mm. Um, And managing chronic illness is comprising 80% of healthcare expenses. And that's now. So if we have our next generation and potentially generations after that to come who are already potentially less healthy than what we're dealing with now, how do we turn this around from the systems level and from an individual person level?
1: kelly i think (laughs) you
2: that's a softball question there you go (laughs) these are
1: great questions i wish i had a magic wand and i could wave it and i would be able to transform a a perfect answer Um, so i don't have that magic wand so i'll just give you how i'm taking our frustration into into action because each one of us has our own sphere of influence right each one of us can advocate for something and, and has an impact on others. Some people have a greater sphere of influence than others, but all of us have a sphere of influence. So with, with that question, it's, um, it then has led me to the third stage in my professional development, I guess, which is to say we need something that really activates uh, consumers to recognize that inherent is their possibility to have what we call big, bold help. And I want to be less uh, apologetic about this. I think in the past I've been very uh, kind of like uh, uh, reserved about how I would speak to someone about health, and because I'd want to convince them that there's something beyond that of just the absence of disease that would be worthy of their consideration. And now I, I guess because of the age I am and, and the, the the length of time I've been in the field, I finally said, you know, it's it's time to kind of uh, maybe take off the gloves and be a little bit more direct about this. And so. We formed a group called Big Bold Health, and Big Bold Health is a, a consumer activist group in which we are trying to take this concept of function into the consumer. We got a we have on our website bigboldhealth.com a very interesting little uh, quiz that a person can take to see where they stack up on their own functional um, health criteria and we're trying to find a way to make health fun uh, and engaging you know what's called gamifying it um because if it's really a uh, no one likes to hang out with disease it's pretty scary and it's not a really positive thing so if we could make health a fun place to hang out and you could actually it wasn't a droll and it wasn't a task and it wasn't a burden but it was something that was really part of your daily living of enlightenment and joy and love and and uh uh, celebratory living, then maybe we could transform health as an infectious new concept. So that's uh, that's our big bold health new advocacy, uh, our consumer direct kind of advocacy, and the, the the construct that I've come up with, as you were describing from from the book um, that I wrote, uh, Disease Delusion, was that we need to really um, start down this road towards transforming health uh, one person at a time. And that, you know, really uh, a nation's health or a community's health or planetary health is really connected to each individual experience and how they collect together into the aggregate to make the group health. So our, um, our hope is that we can take this message to how it influences each individual to achieve their own aspirations as to what health means for them. Because, you know, for me, obviously, uh, this is a central feature of my life, and it's a 24-7 process. For most people, uh, health is uh, maybe a secondary part of what they just expect as one of their their rights in life, uh, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and health. But now we recognize that the health really requires some advocacy to maintain it, and so. You don't have to become a health aficionado and know all the piece parts, but you've got to have some connection to your aspiration to make it happen. Just like practicing the piano or being good at anything. You've got to, you know, we call it practicing good health. What does that mean? It it means being conscious about the fact that you can actually achieve much higher levels of function than maybe you accept on your daily living if you practice a few basic principles. So that to me is... um, it's, it's a big, bold idea, because in the past, we felt more a victim rather than the advocate. And so we go on unbend, unbended knees as a victim to our doctor to rescue us. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't actually produce health. That just produces a, a, a patient. <laughs> so, so we're trying to be a little bit more bold about activism and get each person engaged in their own gamifying the health process.
0: Well, I love that concept. I think, you know, the proactive nature of that message is really critical and allowing consumers and patients to have a role in their own health, you know, moving forward is really critical. Now, I just want to briefly touch on some of the videos on your website. We really enjoyed checking those out, but they cover a variety of topics from neuroinflammation to fecal transplants. I'm curious, what topics are you most passionate about right now?
1: Oh boy, you you two are really good. Um, yeah, that's very good. So I I've got a flame. I got a I I have a a high burn rate right now. Uh, when I have you know been studying this uh, root cause of of problems of functional health problems, it has led me in my trace up to recognizing that you know we would say well inflammation is associated with every chronic disease, but there's a step above that, to say, where does inflammation come from? <laughs> you know, yes, it is true that inflammation, the god of war, Mars, the color red, rubor, choler and dolar, swelling, redness and pain, yes, those are common in our society and they cut across many different of these chronic health issues from everything from gastrointestinal problems to sore joints to dementia. But we have to ask the question, what causes that inflammation? And the seed of inflammation is in the immune system. Mm -hmm. And over just the last few years, in fact, uh, four years ago, a Nobel Prize was won in medicine and physiology for the discovery of a process by which the immune system cleanses itself. Hmm. And the process is called autophagy.
0: Oh, yes. And
1: Uh. (laughs) we, we didn't recognize until recently that the debris that our immune system collects over our life experience that alarms our body and produces inflammation can be um, uh, maybe eliminated as a little bit too strong, but certainly significantly reduced because the immune system is rejuvenating itself all the time if we give it the chance through this process of autophagy. And, and some numbers just to, for to, to kind of make my point more impressive. Uh, it turns out that the you know, where our immune system is uh, formed comes out of our bone marrow. What are called uh, hemopoietic stem cells. These are these are um, blood cells sitting with or potential blood cells sitting in our bone marrow, waiting to get messages from how we're living to know how to convert into the specific parts of our immune system. So the bone marrow sits with these these stem cells, saying, okay. what kind of of products will I make from these stem cells based on the way that person's living and the environment in which they find themselves? And and from that, then I'll create all the different families of our immune system. And over time, uh, if you look at how this this works, if we're constantly exposed to things that are causing our immune system to be activated, it will collect that memory in our immune system that... uh, has it constantly in a state of aggravation, which we call chronic inflammation. Some people call that inflammaging, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's associated with the accelerated aging process and many chronic illnesses. Well, the good news to that bad news story is that, that can be can be cleansed through the fact that every 10 seconds, our body produces 1 million new white blood cells. It produces 30 million new red blood cells, and it produces... 50 million new platelets, which are going to be all involved with the body's cleansing process. So the question is, when those come out of our bone marrow, and we're making those every 10 seconds, are they made in the uh, form of those that are already injured and are alarmed, or are they rejuvenated back to forgetting the bad memories and Mm. start from scratch, Mm. and therefore don't have to come out of the, the bone marrow into our blood as vigilant militant activist to produce inflammation. And that concept of uh, autophagy and immune rejuvenation is to me the central theme of how we're going to turn back biological age and we're gonna beat back chronic complaints because it cuts across sleep disturbances, chronic pain, cognitive uh, problems, foggy brain, digestive difficulties, blood sugar problems. I mean, we could go down the list of all skin difficulties, All of those are connected to this imbalance of the immune system remembering bad memories that we need to kind of wipe away and start afresh. So we're really focused very, very hard in this whole immune rejuvenation process because we now recognize that there are specific nutrients and lifestyle principles. Like, for instance, let's give one that's been in the news lately, the um, time-restricted feeding Time to restricted feeding is using chronobiology, using the way we and the periods in which we eat to allow our body to do immune rejuvenation (laughs) and to create more of these younger uh, uh, immune cells that don't have bad memories attached to them. So just by changing the patterns by which we eat, we can have an effect. Then changing the foods we eat can have an effect. Changing the exercise patterns that we have can have an effect. So these are really dramatic new steps forward in understanding how we roll back what we we now are, have accumulated, which are these messages in our immune system that are constantly at unrest and producing inflammation. So that's what I, we're really focusing on. That's our big, bold health idea.
2: Well, we love it. It's so fascinating. And we are both marveling at your ability to be very deep in an understanding of the neurochemistry and biochemistry of how things work, and then also able to translate that into super practical applications that people can engage in on a regular basis. And so to that end, I would love for you to tell our listeners, if you could give them two things that they could do in in all of your experience and knowledge, just two things that they could do to improve their health and wellness every day, what would they be?
1: Yeah, I, I I think I've said one uh, already because I think it's something people can do easily. Uh, at least I believe it's e- easily done and that's using uh the clock to help regulate our biology. And uh you know we got into this whole thing about snacking <laughs> as a mm-hmm. as a popular um uh feel good way to consume calories and so snacking is, and in fact, I recall even there was a, a big movement uh, back in the 80s and 90s about well, you should have lots of small meals throughout the whole day. So you should be eating all the time. Mm. And, and now we start to see as we as this this research across many different investigators in different fields is is accumulating, particularly the last few years. And I'm thinking of. Uh, um, uh, Sashinanda Panda's work at SOC, or I'm thinking of uh, Walter Longo's work at USC, uh, at School of Medicine, that we're starting to recognize that um, we should compress our eating into a smaller number of hours throughout the day, and that leads to what's called time-restricted feeding. Or, or fasting mimicking diets or whatever you want to call it. I, I try to keep away from the word fasting because that's generally an off-putting word that most people don't want to fast. So, but most people are willing to kind of cut the time in which they eat into different sections. So I think that the concept of, um, depending on, on how aggressive you want to be with time-restricted feeding, but trying to compress your eating time to no more than 12 hours a day, uh, mm-hmm. better even to get at no more than 10 hours a day, so that would mean 14 hours a day you're not eating in ten hours a day you are eating that's the simple first step I would say that would help to transform a lot of people so you we say well how would I really do that And there's many different ways you could do it you could be you know depending on if you're a shift worker or whatever um, so and the, and the common thing if you think about a 14-10 uh, model would you say stop eating at uh, at seven in the evening and then you have five hours to midnight. And then you don't eat again until nine o'clock in the morning. That's fourteen hours, right? That's so easy. you wait for breakfast for nine, and you stop eating at seven. So now you're on time restri- uh, on um, time restricted feeding, and the effects that that has on rejuvenation have been demonstrated. You know, animal studies now in human trials. It's uh, how that affects the uh, the immune system, all sorts of different organ regeneration capabilities. So that would be my. Um, my first kind of thing that is news to use. The second thing is that then when you are eating, you know, what are you eating? And I then the, the rules uh, come to play that to make it simple, uh, I, I still believe that Michael Pollan is right, you know, eat variety, mostly plants, and not too much. (laughs) So, you know, uh, I I think we get into all these fads of now with, you know, we went through paleo and, or maybe we're still in paleo and, and then keto. And I mean, these are all very interesting dietary concepts. And, and I think for the keto diet for uh, epilepsy is, you know, certainly great, but is this a, are these diets that have long-term safety and compliance associated with them and I would say no. Unless you have a therapeutic need, these are not diets that you're going to stay on for the rest of your life. They're they're fats and they come and they go. What doesn't come and go that stays with us is eating variety, mostly plants and not too much. That can stay with us. So those are my my two just kind of starting uh, premises. And then there's many other variations of the thing, but those would be my two first.
0: Well, I have to tell you the, you know, whether it's time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, I mean, that's near and dear to our hearts. And and I love the the message about variety and, and finding what works for you and your body and, you know, eating more green things or is all really sound and, and valuable advice. We're so, so grateful that you carved a little bit of time out of your morning on the West Coast to meet with us. How can our listeners find you?
1: Well, I, I think I've, I've pro- throwing three things out i'm I'm fairly easy to find because they can either find me at jeffreybland.com or they can find me at bigboldhealth.com or they can find me at plmiinstitute.org. so uh, you know all of those are interfacing different information systems but any one of those they'll be directed back to me and what we're doing
2: well thanks again it was such a delight having you here today
1: Well, Kelly, and and I can't tell you, you and uh, Cynthia are both uh, magnificent interviewers and your advocacy uh, beams forward quite light. So thank you so much for what you're doing.
0: Thank
2: you. Thank you.
1: Appreciate it. Be well.
0: Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.